I, I don't believe I drew any conclusion at all about their uh, guilt or innocence, but I did know this. Um, she had a hell of a story to tell, and I wanted to tell it. I think the Pope would have been convicted by, by that jury. Hosted by Emily G. Thompson and Eileen McFarlane, this is The Shattered Window. After all of the evidence was presented to the jury, the fate of Cynthia and David Dwallaby was now in their hands. Had somebody snuck into the Dwallaby home in the dead of the night and abducted and killed Jacqueline, or even more reprehensible, had she been killed by her own parents? While there certainly was motivation for an intruder, nobody could quite comprehend what motivation there would be for Cynthia and David to kill Jacqueline. By all appearances, they were loving parents who worked hard to provide their children with the very best life possible. In a very unusual and almost unheard of motion, in the absence of the jury, Judge Richard Neville announced that he was acquitting Cynthia on all charges. As a judge, he was granted such discretion by law. The case truly hinged on the identification that Everett Mann had made, and at no point in the trial had Cynthia been identified as being near or at the crime scene. There is no evidence, circumstantial or direct, that could suggest that Cynthia committed first-degree murder or aided in the transportation of Jacqueline's body or the concealment of homicide. The prosecution had failed in proving their case as a matter of law beyond a reasonable doubt. In handing down the acquittal, Judge Neville said, as a legal matter, there is insufficient evidence for her case to go to the jury. There is sufficient evidence for David Wallaby to go to trial. Following the decision, David hugged his wife as she turned to the judge and thanked him repeatedly. In closing arguments, the prosecution finally put forward a potential motivation. They suggested that Cynthia and David had become angry when they found Jacqueline playing with her dolls late on Friday night and hinted that they tied her to the bed as a discipline. The murder was accidental, they proposed, adding that the rope found wrapped around Jacqueline's neck wasn't the kind of rope that you strangle somebody with, but instead, the kind of rope you would use to bind somebody. This theory had come from the fact that a small suitcase containing doll's clothing was discovered on Jacqueline's bed when police arrived on the Saturday morning. This theory was lambasted as ludicrous by Cynthia and David's attorneys. As Magic said, you don't murder your daughter because she wanted to play with dolls. Outside of court, Cynthia briefly spoke with the media and said that she was pleased with the verdict and was now waiting for David's acquittal. When the jury retired, the foreperson made it clear she was convinced that David Wallaby was guilty. Some of the jurors attempted to climb through the mock-up of the basement window and failed. This was enough to convince them that no one could have climbed through. The mock-up had no wall or floor beneath the outside of the window. 
It was effectively just a window frame on a wooden stand. The jury spent the next three days in talks before they reached a verdict. Cynthia was sat in the spectator section with her family, as David sat alone at the defence table. While the defence team were more than jubilant that Cynthia had been acquitted, they believed that the only difference in Cynthia's case and David's case was Everett's testimony, which had been thoroughly discredited. After 14 hours of deliberation over the course of three days, the court clerk announced to the silent courtroom that the jury had found David guilty of murdering seven-year-old Jacqueline. The courtroom erupted in emotion as Cynthia shouted out, Oh my God, for what? Before bursting into floods of tears. The defence team were stunned with the verdict. They, among others in the courtroom, believed that there was not enough evidence for a conviction and that the prosecution did not successfully prove beyond reasonable doubt that David was guilty. David was taken to a holding area near the judge's chambers, where he and Cynthia were allowed to say their goodbyes. Stunned and heartbroken, they clung to one another. Channel 5 reporter Paul Hogan called the verdict a stunning upset victory for the prosecution. In effect, a split decision that finds David Wallaby guilty, but one in which the judge said that there wasn't enough evidence for Cynthia's case to go to jury. Outside of court, Assistant State's Attorney, Pat O'Brien, insisted that both Cynthia and David had committed the murder together, but said that there was simply less evidence against Cynthia. He said, Because of the system that protects all defendants, Cynthia DeWallaby is walking the street. Mayor Richard Daly applauded the prosecutors and spoke of how people had doubted the investigation and indictment, but the prosecutors had done an outstanding job. Many of the Dwallaby's friends and neighbours were quick to disagree, calling the investigation and trial unfair. Captain Daniel McDevitt responded by holding a photograph of Jacqueline up to a Channel 7 news camera and saying, This beautiful seven-year-old girl is dead. That is unfair. David was taken into custody immediately while a bond hearing was scheduled for the Monday and a sentencing hearing for July. David would be facing 20 to 80 years in prison. His defence attorneys, Ralph Metrick and Daniel Franks, said that they would be planning on appealing and accused the jury of being unable to separate the enormity of the crime from the evidence that was presented to them. Anne Dwallaby lambasted the media and accused them of distorting the facts in the case, which caused jurors to be biased against her son. Following the verdict, when asked if she thought Cynthia and David had gotten a fair trial, she shouted at reporters outside of the courtroom, saying, Absolutely they did not get a fair trial. It was biased because of the media. The prosecution did their job and you did yours, to put out false information, to print lies without facts. The following day, the jury foreperson, Phyllis Halverson, granted Matt O'Connor of the Chicago Tribune an exclusive interview. Phyllis said that she failed to empathise with Cynthia because she deemed her emotions to be false, claiming that she was crying at all of the right moments. She also stated that Everett Mann was a credible witness because he had a lot to lose by testifying and admitting his affair. The most surprising admission made by the foreperson was that the photographs of the interior of the Dwallaby home made them believe that it was a house of great violence. 
One of the other jurors, one of the jurors in the case, um, a woman uh, named Phyllis Halverson held a press conference or spoke to the media right after the verdict. And she said that they had toured the Dewalabi home and they could tell from touring the home that it was a place of great violence. What that was a reference to was uh, the Dewalabis had moved into this house and somebody had, had um, put fist holes in, in a bedroom. And the, this juror assumed that that had happened after the Dewalabis occupied the house. In fact, the fist holes were there prior to the Dewalabis moving in. And because they didn't have a lot of money, they had just, um, they had actually covered the, uh, this was in their son, baby Dewalabi's room. They covered those fist holes with, um, with the Teenage Mutant uh, Ninja Turtle posters. And those were taken down then by the time the jury uh, uh, toured the house. And so this juror uh, jumps to the conclusion that, oh my God, this was a place of great violence. So there are things like that that went into this verdict that were really pretty uh, ridiculous. The prosecution had shown the jury photographs of three fist marks on the hollow door to Davy's bedroom in Cynthia and David's home. The jury assumed that David had punched the walls in a fit of anger. The article read, Prosecutors never pointed out the damage, but the inference the jury apparently drew was that only a hot-headed father could have done that kind of damage. A father with the kind of temper that could result in a killing. As a matter of fact, the fist marks had been made by David's younger brother, Brian, over ten years earlier. The Dwallaby home was David's childhood home, where he had grown up with his parents and siblings. The fist marks in the walls were there when Cynthia and David moved in, but that wasn't allowed to be explained during the trial. According to juror Evelyn Rhoda, she believed that the photographs of the fist marks had indicated that David had a violent temper. Police and village officials were quick to announce their pleasure with the verdict, with Midlothian police chief William Fisher stating, We're elated. I think the jury concluded exactly what our investigation showed, that a burglar murderer did not break in and murder Jacqueline. He additionally said that the verdict was a relief for the community, who now knew that a child killer was not lurking around the streets of Midlothian, ready to target another child. According to police chief Fisher, he was proud of the investigation and the team effort of all of the task forces that were involved in the case. On May 6th, in the office of the Dwallaby's attorneys, Cynthia broke her silence and told reporters, My husband and I are innocent people. We would never harm our daughter. We would never harm anyone for that matter. We're not capable. We're very loving parents. Someone out there knows something. We beg them to come forward. It's time. Cynthia said that David's heart had been ripped out of his chest and he was numb over the conviction. She said that the family was not going to give up on David and was not going to give up in seeking justice for their daughter. She produced a number of family photographs and questioned why the evidence that they were a close-knit and loving family was never presented in trial. Instead, the prosecution had tried to portray David as a violent man who was capable of murdering Jacqueline. Cynthia said of Judge Neville's decision, I don't think he had to acquit me. He could have taken my case and just handed it over to the jury the same as he did with my husband's. He could have said, this is up to you, this is your decision, it's off my back. It showed a lot of courage that he went out on a limb for me. David protests said the following, 
I later found out by polling the jury, um, would have convicted both of them had Cynthia's case gone along with David's for them to decide. Um, but the judge wisely acquitted Cynthia because there was no evidence against her um, and uh, sent David's case to the jury based on uh, this supposed eyewitness, Everett Mann, who claims that he uh, saw someone who looked like David uh, in the spot where Jacqueline's body was found five days later. Um, and on that basis, the, the jury believed Everett Mann and, and, and convicted him, convicted David. On May 12th, a prayer service was held in Hope Christian Reformed Church in Oak Forest, near the Dwallabies' home. Cynthia's mother Mary spoke to the congregation, saying, God sent us a rosebud on May 17th, 1981. She flowered into a beautiful little girl. In September 1988, she was robbed of life and every ounce of dignity by the most heinous, despicable person on the face of this earth. I demand the case be reopened. Jacqueline's horrible death must not go unavenged. Someone knows what happened to her, and I pray for them to come forward. And I pray to Jacqueline, our little saint in heaven, to comfort us during this time. It's been 20 months since her death, and we have had no time to mourn. A Freedom Committee was formed, spearheaded by the Dwallaby's long-term closest friend, Peggy O'Connor. They donned t-shirts emblazoned with the words, Stop Injustice, Free David Dwallaby and appealed for information leading to the capture of Jacqueline's murderer. Not only had the conviction come as a surprise to David and Cynthia's family, it also came as a shock to their friends who had rallied around them from the moment it was discovered that Jacqueline was missing. They were so convinced in David's innocence that just days after the verdict was read out, two of David's friends put up a $10,000 reward for any information that could lead to the arrest and conviction of the person responsible for the crime. They asked for anybody with any information that could assist in the case to either phone or write a letter to either Cynthia or David's defence lawyers. Just as the members of the task force held onto photos of Jacqueline until a conviction was made, the Freedom Committee promised to wear red and white McCrane bracelets until David Dwallaby was a free man. On May 15th, Cynthia, Peggy and attorney Mechick attended a panel at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism. The panel was hosted by David Protas, a professor at the university, and it was to be a discussion about high-profile cases in the media. Mechick spoke about the dangers of talking to the media. He said an entomologist who had analysed the maggots found on Jacqueline's body had discredited himself by speaking on the radio about faking evidence. Cynthia described her now shattered life to the packed auditorium. She had lost her daughter in the most horrific manner. Her husband had been convicted of killing her daughter. They were bankrupt, and the home they shared with Jacqueline was no longer theirs. Every day before and during the trial, there would be dozens of reporters clamouring for a comment, and she had been directed not to speak to anyone. In the absence of her truth, the public only heard one side. Cynthia said the only reporter who had ever treated them fairly was Channel 5's Paul Hogan. David protests knew Hogan and asked him if he would be interested in covering the story with him. Neither were sure if they believed David Dwallaby was innocent, but they knew it was definitely a compelling story. Two days later, Jacqueline would have turned nine years old. 
Instead of a birthday party, there was only a cemetery to visit. Flanked by graves of those who had lived long lives, her final resting place was adorned with flowers and gifts. Protests reached out to Cynthia and asked if she would be willing to speak with them on the record. Cynthia was hesitant. The media coverage had never been favourable before and she worried that it would be worse if she put herself forward. She was trying to decide on a lawyer to represent David in appealing his conviction and protests said he would ask his wife Joan. Joan was a lawyer and she knew the perfect person for the job, Bob Byman. Byman was a partner at Jenner & Block, one of Chicago's largest law firms. Every year, Jenner & Block took on cases pro bono, and just the year before, they had provided 2,300 hours of free legal service. They strongly held on to the belief that all professionals owe something to society. Furthermore, they do not base their decisions on what cases to take pro bono on whether or not the case is winnable. Bob Byman explained by saying, we take cases whether they're hopeless, hopeful or whatever else. David's sentencing had been postponed until July. Protests persisted in asking Cynthia to give him an interview and after he had been able to put her in touch with a lawyer who would take the case pro bono, she agreed. They had exhausted all of their money on attorneys who would not only advise them not to speak with the media but also let them down. Bob Byman spoke to us about this. I fault Maycheck and Hyman for a couple of things, but but not for that advice. I mean, that's it's standard advice in a criminal trial. Tell your client to shut up. Mainly because no matter how innocent your comments are, the state will find a way to say it's your crudes. Uh, so it's good advice in general. But by the time we were on appeal, and protest was really the architect of this. I was a willing adherent to it and jumped on board very quickly. But it, it wasn't just that we had to convince the Court of Appeal that there wasn't sufficient evidence to convict. We had to convince the Court of Appeal that they could say that without taking substantial heat. Because it's, it's too easy for the Court of Appeals to just say, we might have come to a different decision, but the jury has ruled and we respect the jury. And they leave it alone. Uh, Anytime they overturn a jury, they know it's going to be put under a microscope. And these are elected judges, unfortunately, in Illinois. I, I hate the fact that we elect our judges, but we do. And they're aware of the political ramifications of doing something that seems unpopular. So it was important to the Duolabies that we make it popular for them to come to the right result. And, and that's basically what we did by doing our sort of own media campaign to get in front of them. The cameras as often as we could during the appeal. Before the interview, protests wanted to get a feel for who the Duwallabies were. He canvassed the neighbourhood and the response was overwhelmingly supportive. Here's what protests had to say about getting involved. Well, I, I first heard about the Duwallaby case on the news like everybody else in Chicago who was transfixed um, by this um, little girl disappearing from her bed in the middle of the night. Um, and uh, after watching the stories for a few days, I reached the tentative conclusion that they were probably guilty. Um, in, in my mind, little children don't vanish from their beds um, uh, in the middle of the night with their parents nearby. Uh, I figured that some harm had befallen her inside the house and that one of the a couple, David or Cindy, had uh, gone out and, and dumped her body 
by the Islander Apartments in Blue Island. Um, so I, I guess my, my view was the uh, same view that was shared by the police and uh, the entire basis for my criticism of their work, which is that they made uh, faulty assumptions and jumped to conclusions without looking at the evidence. Uh, but as far as my, my personal involvement uh, with the case, um, after Cindy was acquitted and David was convicted, uh, Cindy held a press conference in which she declared her innocence and said that she'd been railroaded, among other things, by uh, the, me the media. Um, this press conference happened to coincide with a an annual panel, panel discussion I had uh, for my students called The Other Side of the Story, where I bring in people to talk to young journalism students about what it was like to be stigmatized um, by the media. Um, in an effort to try to get these journalism students to uh, learn empathy and to be a little more sensitive to others. Um, not to necessarily believe their stories, but to at least hear them. Um, so, the, so the timing was coincidental, and I invited uh, Cindy and her lawyer to, to join the panel. Uh, and they did. And, um, you know, it lasted about an hour and a half or so. Um, I, I don't believe I drew any conclusion at all about their uh, guilt or innocence from what Cindy uh, said to the students. But I did know this. Um, she had a hell of a story to tell, and I wanted to tell it. And um, I've done a lot of freelance writing for the Chicago Tribune and other publications. And afterwards, I tried to uh, gently persuade her um, to, to talk to me and then began this dance um, on the record, off the record, meeting in different places, sometimes with Paul Hogan, the uh, NBC5 reporter who had uh, covered the story and believed that the evidence against the Wallabies was incredibly weak. Uh, so, they, so they had some level of trust with him. Uh, so, so Paul Hogan and I and, and, and Cindy would meet and gradually I persuaded her to go on the record and then began a, a month-long process of investigating the case where I became firmly convinced um, of their innocence. The, the consensus in the neighborhood was, uh, was alarm. Uh, they knew that uh, Dave and Cindy had not committed this crime, which meant that the actual killer was out there. Um, and this was a, a, a neighborhood filled with young people, young families with, with children Jacqueline's age and Davy's age, a couple of years younger, and they were petrified. Um, so that, that was the mood in the neighborhood. And, and then for the people who knew the Dualabis personally, like their next door neighbors, the, the Tolberts, um, there was a sense of outrage that this could happen to a, an ordinary middle American family living in a typical middle American suburb. Uh, outraged that the police jumped to conclusions and, and arrested the wrong people. Cynthia had remained silent in the media for almost two years, but she was finally ready to tell her side of the story. David Protess and Marianne Williams wrote a two-part article where Cynthia spoke of the relentless trauma that had befallen the Dwallaby family since Jacqueline went missing in September 1988. She had lost her daughter, her husband, and her son. The relief she felt having finally given her side was short-lived. The day the second part of the article was published, 
Davy's records from Mount Sinai were leaked to the media. Channel 7 ran a story about the chart Dr. Ahart had drawn up, indicating Davy had numerous injuries. The reporter announced that the findings were that Davy had been physically and possibly sexually abused by his mother. Cynthia was able to disprove the allegations in juvenile court with police photographs of Davy the day he was taken into the care of the state. The photographs clearly showed that he did not bear the injuries Dr. Ahart claimed he had. A stark contrast to the sensationalist antics of Channel 7's reporter, Paul Hogan broadcast live from Cynthia's juvenile case attorney's office. Janet Traffalet, who represented Cynthia in the custody case for Davy, said the photos spoke for themselves. Hogan said that they showed that Davy only had the type of marks any child gets and blasted the illegal leaking of the hospital records. Incensed at the tactics used by the media to try and damage his family even more, David Dwallaby decided it was time that he told his own story and agreed to be interviewed by Hogan, Protess and Maryanne Williams at the Cook County Jail. The interview took place in what used to be the execution chamber, where convicted men once sat in the electric chair, David poured his heart out, dismissing his attorney's advice not to answer certain questions. David had lost a significant amount of weight following his conviction. He had chosen not to go into the yard during his designated time because he didn't want to go out until he was really free. He spoke candidly about his feelings, saying, The only thing I did wrong was that I didn't wake up and save my daughter. My daughter would have expected me to be her hero and to save her, but I couldn't save her. I wish to God I woke up that night, but I didn't. I'm guilty of that. If that's why I was here, I could accept it. David Protest spoke to us about that interview. I had already written um, the um, investigative story about Cynthia for the Chicago Tribune, which gave David enough confidence to uh, speak with me and with Paul Hogan, uh, whose uh, coverage he already admired since he was the only reporter in Chicago who was telling it straight. And um, so we, um, we arranged through David's lawyer uh, a meeting at the Cook County Jail, but was actually uh, originally used as uh, the place where people were put to death by electrocution. Uh, so that was the first thing that was, I think, very striking about the interview is that everyone was going in sort of nervous and uncomfortable in the first place since David had never spoken publicly about the case. I think that was probably most, I don't remember a lot of the details from the interview, it was 30 years ago. Um, I'll tell you what was most striking about my interview um, and Paul Hogan's interview with David. It's that um, his lawyer was present and tried to shut him up a number of times um, because there were legal issues pending that the lawyer didn't want him discussing. Uh, and, and David brushed him aside and insisted on finally having the opportunity to, to tell the truth, to talk publicly about everything, including his pot use and one occasion a sale of a pound of marijuana, um, things that were hurtful to himself. Uh, but he also told a very painful truth about what it was like as a parent to not wake up in time to save his daughter. Uh, that was probably the biggest takeaway I had from that interview, is that is that David would suffer the rest of his life because he did not hear the intruder and awaken in time and intervene, and his daughter was taken out of the house and, and murdered, and he blames himself. David was grateful that Cynthia had been acquitted. 
He spoke of how facing the possibility of being in jail for the rest of his life was not the worst thing that he had ever faced. The worst was losing his daughter. Speaking with David in person convinced David Protest of his innocence, and from that day on, he promised he would do everything he could to get him out of prison. John Waters died that same day. The private investigator for the defence had fought to find Jacqueline's killer while fighting aggressive colon cancer. His work would be carried on by a collection of Dwallaby supporters from the neighbourhood, the media, and one of the largest law firms in Chicago. But first, attorney Daniel Franks filed a motion to overturn the verdict. A hearing was held on July 9th. Attorney Franks spoke at length before asking Judge Neville to overturn the guilty verdict. Judge Neville was impressed with Frank's argument, but didn't think it was appropriate to second-guess 12 people. David's defence team refused to throw the towel in and requested that David be given a new trial, citing 33 errors on the prosecution's part. The highly publicised case took a surprising turn when the defence revealed that they had a new witness. Cathy Farley, a claims analyst, reported that she had been jogging along 118th Street in Alsip on the morning of the 10th of September 1988. This street was approximately five miles from where the Dwallabies lived. She claimed that whilst jogging, a car pulled up beside her to ask for directions to Blue Island. Two Hispanic men were in the car, and Cathy couldn't help but notice a blanket in the back seat, which looked as though it was hiding something underneath. Later in the evening, Cathy saw the news report on Jacqueline's disappearance and thought back to what had transpired that morning. She confessed that she didn't even think to come forward with this tidbit of information until she found David's lawyer's numbers following his conviction. The passenger resembled Perry Hernandez, she said. Despite this, Judge Neville refused to grant David a new trial. However, he did describe the defence's motion as well done, and according to Attorney Franks, his comments were evidence that they had raised several valid points throughout the hearing. He spoke about two key pieces of evidence in particular in his plea for overturning the verdict, and they were the pubic hair found in Jacqueline's underwear and the unidentified hair intertwined in the rope. Speaking outside of court, attorney Frank said, the jury's decision should have been based on the evidence presented at the trial, and it was not. Judge Neville realises this, and I think the appellate court will realise that. Bob Byman spoke about the jury's decision. It was human nature. The, the jury saw this beautiful little girl, saw that she had been senselessly murdered, and they had a binary choice. They had a choice between saying, okay, we'll convict the person you put in front of us, or we'll say, we don't know what happened, so we can't give her justice. And that's a tough thing to ask 12 ordinary people, or even 12 extraordinary people. You either don't do anything to help the family get closure, or to help the victim uh, get justice, or you convict the wrong person. And I think the Pope would have been convicted uh, by that jury. The sentencing phase began the next day. There was a hearing beforehand to discuss the aggravating and mitigating factors that may affect the length of the sentence David was to be given. Judge Neville said, We all want to know why this girl died. We do not know why this murder happened. We do not know exactly how this happened. He went on to say that whether or not a motive was revealed during the trial was irrelevant because the jury decided that David killed Jacqueline. 
The defence had asked for a 20-year minimum sentence, but the judge said that a minimum term of 20 years would be inappropriate for a child murder. He said that David was entitled to consideration because of the testimony that was provided that said he was a good, honest and trustworthy man. Prosecutors had tried to tarnish David's reputation during the sentencing hearing by calling two co-workers of his, who testified he had sold the marijuana several years prior. The men said that David was a good man and a good worker and had never come to work under the influence of either drugs or alcohol. Under cross-examination by the defence, the men admitted that David had not made any profit from the drugs, but instead supplied them just because they were friends and had been unable to source marijuana elsewhere at the time. One of the colleagues described David as a family man who never drank more than one beer while out with his friends. In fact, the colleague said that David would always leave early, stating that he wanted to get home to be with his family. A number of witnesses also testified that David had never used or sold illegal drugs and that he was the most peaceful man at work who took pride in his job and pride in his family. David was given the opportunity to make a statement. Pale-faced and grief-stricken, he said, Your Honour, Jacqueline was beautiful. She was charming, she was pure, she was giggly, she was bubbly, she was soft, she was innocent. She had a right to live. So who can kill an innocent little child? An animal? A monster? A degenerate? Someone who has no morals? That's not me, Your Honour. I did not kill my daughter. I loved her. I love her forever in my heart, and that's the truth. Judge Neville subsequently sentenced David to 40 years for murder and a consecutive five years for concealing a homicide. The judge conceded that he was still a bit perplexed as to how exactly Jacqueline met her demise, indicating that he possibly wasn't 100% comfortable with the prosecution's theory. Following the sentencing, Judge Neville explained for the first time why he decided to acquit Cynthia. He stated that the prosecution had failed to prove that Cynthia did anything or even knew that her daughter had been murdered. He said that at best, they had proved that Cynthia was in a home where a crime had taken place and that the evidence against Cynthia was distinctively different from the evidence against David. There is a theory of law which says that mere presence at the scene of a crime is not sufficient evidence for a conviction and based on this theory of law, Cynthia was acquitted. David Protest was present in court following David's sentencing. He did not know what else to do other than stick his middle finger up with the prosecutors as they left. Outside of court, Cynthia shared her indignation with the sentence that David had been handed down. She reiterated that her husband was innocent and that the conviction and sentence was a travesty of justice. The following day, protest began canvassing the jury. We, we had the jurors' home addresses and began visiting them. And the last juror, and, and we got all kinds of uh, explanations, although there was a consensus that, that the form, foreman of the jury, Phyllis Halverson, uh, was so committed to uh, a conviction that she basically browbeat others um, uh, into submitting. Uh, and then there were the jurors who climbed through the mock-up of the broken basement window and concluded that no one uh, could have made it through there, which is ridiculous. We've reenacted it a number of times, and people could easily, uh, the intruder could have easily fit through. Uh, and the judge had instructed them not to, to play around with the mock-up, but they did it anyway. So, I mean, in talking to most of the jurors, a consensus emerges to what went wrong here. 
Um, but no one was willing to stand up and fix it until I got to the home of Linda Wisniewski. Uh, Linda was deeply troubled by the verdict. She was absolutely convinced that David was innocent. And, and by day three, she's not, she was not a strong person. Uh, she just caved pressure by Phyllis Halverson and some of the men on the jury uh, who insisted that David was, was guilty and cast her vote and hoped that an appellate court would reverse it and that he would be freed soon and then uh, had to live with that every day of her life until I showed up at her house and she broke down in tears and admitted that she had made the wrong decision and was willing to do anything to try to rectify it. Um, ultimately, she signed an affidavit and went on uh, NBC5 News uh, with Paul Hogan, admitting that the jury had made a mistake and had broken the law in a number of instances in reaching their verdict. Uh, and I came away feeling a little bit better having at least spoken out to try to rectify her mistake. In the wake of the conviction, David's defense attorneys heard from one of the jurors. Linda Wisniewski had been on the jury during the murder trial. She reached out to David's attorneys to say that she felt more than unsettled with the verdict. After all of the testimony was presented, Linda had reached the conclusion that neither David or Cynthia were guilty of Jacqueline's murder. Speaking with WMAQ-TV, Linda said, When they read the verdict and said David Dwallaby was guilty of murder, I didn't know why I didn't go into a seizure, or why I didn't say not guilty. I felt like, God, what happened here? Why didn't I say something? And he's convicted of a murder that I don't believe he did. If I was the one person who said I'm not sure, I could have caused a mistrial. Then they would have to have another jury. And now this man doesn't have a chance. I'll be dead by the time he gets out of jail. According to Linda, the jurors had disregarded Judge Neville's instructions, not to hold it against David that he did not testify on his own behalf during trial. She explained that they had wanted explanations for things that they were not getting by the evidence that was being presented by both sides. Most of the jurors had erroneously determined that only a guilty person would not testify on their own behalf. It's relatively common for a defendant to not testify during their own trial. The Fifth Amendment states that no person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. This provides a safeguard against self-incrimination for the defendant. When a defendant pleads the Fifth, that decision should not prejudice the jury in favour of the prosecution. After Linda went public, there were calls for the murder verdict against David to be reconsidered. Judge Neville, however, was quick to state that he did not see Linda recant her verdict on television and said that a juror's misgivings following a trial generally do not matter. He said that the general rule is that jurors are not allowed to impeach their own verdict, stating that if this occurred, then litigation would never end. A jury verdict could be examined if there was any evidence of external pressure. For example, bribery or threats to the juror or their family. But Judge Neville said that in general, second thoughts don't make a difference. Meanwhile, Channel 5 television news reporter Paul Hogan 
was making groundwork on what he believed was a wrongful conviction. Channel 5 aired a series of exclusive reports, which accused the Midlothian Police Department, state evidence technicians and the Cook County State's Attorney's Office with bungling the murder investigation and focusing solely on David and Cynthia as the perpetrators. He lambasted Midlothian police for contaminating the crime scene and the evidence found at the crime scene. He suggested that state evidence technicians conducted a sloppy investigation at the home and accused assistant state attorneys of gaining grand jury indictments on the Dwallabies with evidence which had later been proved false or could not be substantiated. Our expert says state police evidence technician whose primary job was to seek out and collect all physical evidence should have immediately collected and inventoried the glass. Instead, he waited three days and then had to retrieve it from a trash basket. Channel 5 hired a number of experts to conduct their own investigation into how the case was handled. Forensic expert Samuel Skip Polanik reviewed the physical evidence reports and concluded that investigators had destroyed the evidence that could have proven there had been an intruder at the Dewallaby home, and that the fibre test conducted on the trunk liner of Cynthia's Chevy Malibu had established with virtual certainty that Jacqueline's body had not been transported in the car. Hogan stated that it was his opinion that there was misbehaviour on their part, and that the prosecution had even overlooked evidence which may have been able to exonerate Cynthia and David. Hogan concluded the investigative series on July 26th, stating, After going through thousands of documents, our investigative unit concludes that police made so many errors that it's now impossible to determine through physical evidence who killed Jacqueline DeWallaby. When the series was released, officials denied the reports. According to Chief William Fisher, Hogan had failed to report information that did not support his theories. He stated that while investigating, Hogan had asked Calumet City Police Chief Stephen Rhodes, who was an expert on determining if a suspect was telling the truth, to watch David on videotape. The expert determined that David had been lying when he spoke about the murder of Jacqueline. However, it's well known that body language clues can be unreliable, and it is not a tool that can be used as evidence. For example, there was once a point in time when body language experts believed that someone not looking into your eyes was lying. Far too often, these so-called experts attribute too much meaning to such behaviours. Lie detection techniques have been seriously discredited by scientists, and have even been referred to as junk science. According to Hogan, Chief Rhodes' method could not have been substantiated by another expert in the same field. Furthermore, he had not been able to examine David in person, and based his findings solely on a videotape, in which he could not even see David's whole body. Furthermore, Chief Rose was close with a number of the police officers who had worked on the case. In particular, he was very close with Chief Fisher. Three days earlier, the Midlothian police had come under criticism for failing to disclose another abduction that was eerily similar in many ways to the abduction of Jacqueline. On the 15th of July, a seven-year-old girl was abducted from her home and sexually assaulted. Even more chilling, the girl's home was located half a mile from the Dewallaby home. At around 4.45am, an unidentified man entered the girl's house by removing a screen on her parents' bedroom window. 
He crept past her sleeping parents, walked down the hallway past another bedroom, and entered the bedroom where the young girl and her older sister were sleeping. The man wrapped the young girl up in a blanket and walked right out the front door to a prairie located around 150 feet away. When the man began to sexually assault the young girl, she started to scream and cry. So he walked her back to the front door of her house and told her to go inside, but not to tell anybody what had happened. The girl immediately rushed into her parents' bedroom and woke them up. Fear once again swept over the community of Midlothian, especially parents. Residents of the city could not go to bed at night without double-checking their doors and windows, and children were once again forbidden from playing on the streets. Ben Heemstra, the father of one of the victim's playmates, said that his daughter was now too afraid to sleep alone at night. Shirley Keeney, who had lived in Midlothian for 25 years, spoke with the Chicago Sun-Times and said that she used to feel so safe in Midlothian that she would frequently leave her door unlocked, but not any longer. What was especially troubling to some residents, especially the supporters of Cynthia and David, was the striking similarities between the two cases. When news of the recent abduction made its way to David's attorneys, they subpoenaed the records and photographs related to the investigation. The abduction still remained unsolved and the subpoena ordered that Midlothian police chief William Fisher give a deposition before the 3rd of August to provide the attorneys with legible copies of their records into the abduction. According to attorney Janet Traffelay, they were working to figure out whether the case was substantially similar to the case of Jacqueline. She accused police chief Fisher of not providing any dissimilarities in the two cases. Yet they contended that there were no links between the cases. Meanwhile, residents in the area criticised police for failing to notify the community of the abduction. A number of people came up with the idea to take the case to the village board meeting, which is held each month. According to police chief Fisher, however, they had not gone public with the abduction because the family of the victim had asked them not to, out of fear that they would be hounded by the media. Police Chief Fisher even stated, I couldn't very well tell the public, you're not safe in your own homes. Understandably, this excuse didn't sit well with many locals, in particular, parents. Captain John Bitten defended the police's silence by stating that it was in the best interests of the victim and her family, stating, they didn't want it to turn into something like what happened to the Dwallabies. Just days later, however, it was announced that 33-year-old Mark A. Melcher had been arrested for the abduction and sexual assault of the little girl. He was connected to the crime scene when his fingerprints were discovered on the bedroom window screen. The tip that led to Melcher had come from Alsip Police, who around a month earlier had arrested him after he attempted to lure two 10-year-old girls to a vacant lot. He had been questioned by police, but since no crime had been committed, he was released. After Midlothian police tracked him down, he was ordered to provide hair samples as well as finger and palm prints, and it was found to be a match to the evidence left behind at the crime scene. Following his arrest, it was also revealed that he had been in prison from February of 1987 until May of 1989, which meant that he could not have been involved in the abduction and murder of Jacqueline. 
while this update was crushing to David's defence. In a way, it still bolstered their case. The prosecution had been so adamant and so sure that it was physically impossible for a stranger to break into somebody's home in the middle of the night and abduct their child from right under their noses. This was just another case that proved that it was very much plausible. Yes, yes, yes. There were, there were uh, two or three other cases in the, in the vicinity uh, in which uh, 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 people had entered through basement windows like this and, and, and attempted to abduct children. In um, uh, two of those cases, I think uh, they were, uh, and we looked into those, uh, I, I'm convinced that, that they were unrelated uh, to the Duality case, except, of course, that they showed that it was possible. You know, there was one of these guys, I remember it's kind of a, of a strange situation that he had been convicted of breaking into a house, taking out a little girl, molesting her in a field, and it occurred nearby, and this guy was in prison. And, of course, he couldn't have done the Dewalby crime because he also had been in prison at the time, of, he'd been in police custody at the time of the Dewalby crime. Uh, I, you know, I, I remember trying to, find out I was going to see if the police had done something to, to frame him or something. In mid-July, Cook County Juvenile Court Judge Robert Smirziak granted permission for Davy to go back home and live with Cynthia and his sister Carly, who were now living in Tinley Park with Cynthia's mother Mary. The Duwallabies had to sell the family's Midlothian home to pay for their legal fees. According to testimony presented by a psychologist, Davy's emotional health had been declining due to the anxiety he was experiencing from being separated from his parents. He had expressed a loss of interest in life because he struggled to be away from Cynthia and David. Davy could barely contain his excitement when he learned he was going to be back with his family, with those who loved him. While Cynthia wasn't granted full custody and could never be alone with her children, this was a step in the right direction. Ed McManus, a spokesman for the state's attorney's office, said that the state was disappointed with the decision to reunite Davy with his family, but said that they accepted the decision of the court. He further stated that the state would try and remove both Davy and Carly from Cynthia's care at the September child abuse trial, and that he believed they had a good case against the family. Before July came to a close, around 130 friends and relatives of Cynthia and David packed the Hope Christian Reformed Church in Oak Forest to pray for the couple. Most of those in attendance wore thin ribbons around their wrists, red for courage and white for purity. They explained that they would be keeping the ribbons on until David came home. A number openly blamed the police, county prosecutors and the media for a miscarriage of justice and called for the case to be reopened. Cynthia's mother Mary spoke with the Chicago Sun-Times and said, Someone knows what happened to our precious girl. And with God's help and the support of moral people everywhere, her murderer will be found. Cynthia sat at the front of the church as the service began. Reverend Bill Lenters gave prayers while two of David's sisters read Psalm 142, which is a classic plea for deliverance. Several songs were sang while eight short speeches were read out. Mary described David as the only daddy that Jacqueline ever knew and said that she thanks God for that. She said... She had all the things a little girl could want, but the greatest was the unconditional love of her mommy and daddy, who guided her as best they knew how. 
Cynthia was determined to win back full custody of Davy, who was still living with David's sister and her husband. According to Janet Traffalet, the hospital workers at Mount Sinai had decided that Davy had been abused before they even examined him, because they had been contaminated by police misinformation. She contended that police had given the hospital workers their version of Jacqueline's murder by referring to the graphic photographs of Jacqueline in the morgue and by claiming that Davy had been locked in his bedroom and David had punched holes in his bedroom door. She showed reporters the photographs of Davy which had been taken the day after his parents had been arrested for Jacqueline's murder. The photograph showed three minuscule marks. There was a small scrape on his finger, a bruise on his foot and a small scratch on his back. According to the physician who examined Davy, these marks implied that he'd been abused by his parents. Janet Traffalet instead argued that the small bumps and scratches were consistent in little children and certainly did not indicate abuse. Shortly after the release of the Channel 5 reports, an Illinois appellate court ruled that David could be released on a $500,000 bond while he appealed his conviction. That meant that if David posted $50,000 in cash, he could be released. However, just days later, Judge William Clark delayed the order. This meant that David's fate would be in the hands of the Illinois Supreme Court. If they were to uphold the bond ruling, then David could be free pending the appeal of the murder conviction. If the Supreme Court were to uphold the state's motion, then David would remain in Cook County Jail during the appeal. Renee Goldfarb, who was the supervisor of the appellate division of the Cook County State's Attorney's Office, announced the prosecution would do their best to get the case in front of the Supreme Court as quickly as possible. David was overjoyed and rang home to tell them he would be back soon. He packed his belongings and eagerly awaited word that he was leaving. The following day, the Illinois Supreme Court Justice temporarily blocked the appellate court decision to release David on bond. Cook County State's Attorney spokesman Dan McCullough said, We don't think it's appropriate for Mr. DeWallaby to be free after having been convicted of murdering his seven-year-old daughter. The Illinois Supreme Court would rule in favour of the prosecution and revoke the $500,000 bond, meaning that David would have to remain behind bars, at least until his appeal could be decided. The update was crushing to Cynthia and the rest of the family, who had believed that David would be coming home. David would remain in prison while awaiting his appeal, and they would need a more experienced lawyer to handle it. Protest had suggested Bob Byman, and it was time to call him. Bob Byman told us about how he heard about the case. Well, I became aware of it the way most of the public did, just by reading the news. Uh, It was a sensational, startling fact that a seven-year-old little girl had shown up missing from a suburban home. And then every day, uh, the news, and this would be local Chicago news, I think the national news picked it up briefly, but in local Chicago news, it it dominated the news for years. but for six days, everybody had it sort of collected, collective holding their breath. And then the body was found. And then the news started to just dribble out as for, for a couple of months, the police had no leads. They didn't know uh, who they could charge or whether they would charge anybody. And then suddenly around Thanksgiving, the Duolabies were charged. And then I followed the news. And from reading the news, it sounded like, boy, these people really are guilty. And then the trial finally came out. And from looking at the news, I kept on saying, wait, that's what they're reporting happened in court. That doesn't sound like evidence of guilt. 
and then day after day, and the trial took a while, but all of the reporting was that everything that was happening in the courtroom was to prove that Jacqueline had once lived and then died. There wasn't anything that linked the parents to it. Uh, and so it, it was no shock when we learned that Cindy had been cut loose on a motion for directed verdict, but it was a huge shock that David was convicted. And I was, again, just sitting there as a consumer of news at that point. Then I got a call from Dave Protest's wife, Joan, uh, who I had had several cases with before. She was a lawyer at Sidley and Austin. And she asked me if my firm might consider handling the appeal. And I'll, I'll be honest, my, my desire to do it was strictly uh, out of self-interest, mainly because I wanted the excuse to read the record. I was intellectually curious about how these people could have been convicted based upon what I had read in the press. So I went to my executive committee. It was a close vote. Uh, my executive committee did not want to take the case because it was going to be a substantial amount of resources. There was a guy at our firm who was our chairman for 20 or 25 years. He was very important to our firm. He was very important to me. He was my mentor. And he was one of the dissenting votes. And he came to me and said, of all the people we could represent on a pro bono basis, why would we want to represent baby killers? Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Shattered Window. The Shattered Window is a completely independent podcast paid for out of our own pockets. If you'd like to support the show in return for loads of bonus content, behind the scenes, merch and more, then please check out The Shattered Window on Patreon. The link is in the show notes. Also make sure you visit us at theshatteredwindow.com for more information about this episode and follow us on social media to keep up to date with the case and any developments. If you enjoy The Shattered Window, it would mean the world if you'd left us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening. Ratings and reviews are an easy way to support a show that you enjoy and can help us reach new listeners. Once again, thank you for listening, and until next time, take care of yourselves, stay safe, and have an amazing week.